We've heard a lot from John Ramsey over the last few episodes. You may have noticed he has a tendency to repeat himself. Well, you know, JonBenet and Patsy did that for fun. Well, Patsy and, and JonBenet did it for fun. They just yeah. had fun with it. Well, you know, at the time, Patsy and JonBenet did it. They had fun with it. But they, had, they just had fun with it. And they had fun with it. Patsy and JonBenet did it just because it was fun. Well, it was just fun for them. They just did it for fun. Indeed, in John's interviews, we do see the same key talking points, often expressed in exactly the same words, coming up over and over again. Remember, John was the CEO of what was essentially a marketing business. He's very good at steering the conversation the way he wants it to go, making himself sound authoritative and trustworthy. As the independent prosecutor Mike Kane recalled, John Ramsey always left me with the impression that he was a very smart man, and he is very careful at answering questions. I always felt like I was talking to a press secretary who was giving responses with a spin. I felt like their answers were very careful and, in some cases, scripted. I never felt like I was getting a spontaneous response. John has been at the forefront of the Ramsey's media campaign for the last 25 years. Perhaps more than anyone else, John Ramsey has determined how people talk and think about this case. It's logical, then, that we should look at John himself as a potential suspect. In this episode, we're going to talk about the theory that John Ramsey killed Jean Benet. The most well-known proponent of that theory was Detective Linda Arndt, the first detective on the scene. Linda Arndt hinted at her theory in an emotional interview on Good Morning America in 1999. I know who killed Jean Benet. There's no doubt in my mind who killed Jean Benet. She clarified her theory in a deposition a few years later. John actually killed his daughter, but Patsy was involved in presenting the murder as something other than a murder. According to lead investigator Steve Thomas, Arndt was the lone voice in favor of that theory among the police officers, the rest of whom believed Patsy was the killer. One gets the sense from accounts of the investigation that Arndt's views were not really taken seriously by her male colleagues. She resigned in 1999 and has not publicly discussed the case in the last two decades. John Ramsey, who refers to Arndt in his book as a, quote, lady detective, often uses Linda Arndt as a scapegoat for the alleged police bias against his family. I mean, you talk about the bias we were faced with. Linda Arnott, the first detective that was there, that was there all morning, said on national television, I saw it in John Ramsey's eyes that morning that he was the killer. Conclusion. That early. But this is not really a fair portrayal of Linda Arnott's reasoning. Let's step back and look at the circumstances here. The parents report a child missing with a ransom note that makes no sense. The father says he was the last one to see the child, then after a few hours, you ask the father to search the house from top to bottom, and he goes straight to the basement and reveals that the child's dead body has been hidden in the basement all along. There is no detective on the planet who would not suspect John Ramsey in that moment. It has nothing to do with a look in his eyes. It's the basic circumstances of the crime. Furthermore, as I pointed out in episode two, there's no evidence to support John's claim that police simply accepted Linda Arndt's initial hunch. Another obvious reason to look at John is the fact that this crime looked very much like child sexual abuse. 
John Ramsey was the only adult male known to be in the house that night. Again, it's not exactly radical to suggest that he should be a focus of investigation. The vast majority of offenders in sex crimes are men. As the renowned pathologist Dr. Robert Kirshner, who was consulted on the Ramsey case, stated, If she had been taken to a hospital emergency room and doctors had seen the genital evidence, her father would have been arrested. And although mothers are overall more likely to kill their child, one study found that in cases of child death from head trauma, the killer was more likely to be a male. According to Linda Arndt's deposition, people from the Boulder Department of Social Services were also concerned about potential indicators of dysfunction in the Ramsey family. Holly Smith from the Boulder County Sexual Abuse Team noted that JonBenet's toileting issues could point to something more sinister. There is this dynamic of children that have been sexually abused sometimes soiling themselves or urinating in their beds to keep someone who is hurting them at bay. It's very different for every child. But when you have a child that's had this problem and it's been pretty chronic for that child, and in addition you know some sort of physical evidence or trauma or an allegation, you put all those little pieces together. In Burke Ramsey's interview from January 1997, child psychologist Dr. Suzanne Bernard also noted potential indicators of abuse within the family. Dr. Bernard felt there needed to be more follow-up with Burke in the discussion of sexual contact. The only show of emotion by Burke other than the irritation with the questions about the actual crime, was when Dr. Bernard began to ask about uncomfortable touching. On top of this, there was an interesting comment made by Prosecutor Bruce Levin during John's interview in the year 2000, raising the possibility of forensic evidence connecting John to the crime. Mr. Ramsey, it is our belief, based on forensic evidence, that there are hairs that are associated that the source is the collared black shirt that you sent us that were found in your daughter's underpants. However, it is important to note that unlike the fiber evidence from Patsy's jacket, which is well attested in multiple sources, Levin's claim about shirt fibers in the underpants does not appear in any other source on this case. I think we have to acknowledge that this is highly uncertain and should be treated with some caution. Clearly, the forensic case against John Ramsey is not as strong as the forensic case against his wife. Another difference is that while numerous people claimed to have seen signs of an inappropriate relationship between Patsy and Jean Benet, as far as we know, nobody ever made that claim about John Ramsey and his daughter. John's children from his first marriage staunchly defended him as a loving father. However, society is no longer as naive about sexual predators as it once was. As we now know, many predators are highly respected authority figures. They develop close and trusting relationships with their victims and the people around them. As psychologist Dr. Anna Salter noted, The front that offenders typically offer to the outside world is usually a good person. Someone who the community believes has a good character and would never do such a thing. Likeability is such a potent weapon that it protects predators for long periods of time. Child abuse is an invisible crime, based largely on emotional manipulation. It can go on for decades, in plain sight, with close family members never suspecting a thing. For example, two years after football coach Jerry Sandusky was convicted of abusing ten children, 
Here's what his wife had to say. I've known him for 38 years. I was, I've been married to him for 37, and he's always been truthful to me. And um, I've asked him, and we've talked about it, and I, the, the stories are just, I cannot believe the stories that have been told about him. Comments like this are all too common. She loved her daddy. She was daddy's girl. Contrary to popular belief, there is no sure way of knowing if a child is being abused. With all this in mind, we can take a look at John Ramsey's background. John was born on December 7, 1943, in Lincoln, Nebraska, but he grew up in Michigan. We know very little about John's mother, other than that she was a homemaker. His father was a pilot in World War II, who then worked for the Michigan Aeronautics Commission. One friend of the Ramseys had this to say about John's father. He was very cold, like John was with everybody. After college, John worked for the Civil Engineer Corps in the Philippines for three years, then joined the Naval Reserve. In 1966, John married his first wife, Cindy. They had three children, John Andrew, Melinda, and Beth. John and Cindy divorced in 1978, after John had an affair with a woman named Gloria. Not long afterwards, John met Patsy. He was 36. She was 23, a beauty queen fresh out of college. John had been working in various sales jobs since leaving the Navy and was now making good money in the computer business in Atlanta. He eventually started his own company, marketing and distributing computer products. This business would eventually become Access Graphics, the company that made John Ramsey very rich. The company soon expanded internationally and was worth more than a billion dollars at the time of the killing. Up until 1992, according to John Ramsey, he'd never experienced any real suffering or hardship. That all changed when one of his daughters from his first marriage, Beth, was killed in a car accident. John has discussed this as a kind of defining moment something that caused a profound change in his beliefs, in his whole outlook on life. It just didn't make sense. Car accident? Car accident, middle of the day, just a freak accident. Uh, she, had, she and her boyfriend were both killed. I really hit rock bottom, and I was, prior to that time, was a, a cultural Christian. My faith kind of transitioned from this intellectual um, study and, and challenging to accepting it. Personality-wise, John is somewhat difficult to pin down. When asked in 1998 to describe himself in a paragraph, he said, Um, fairly passive, sensitive, not extremely well-spoken, decent work ethic, loves his children, loves his family, likes free time, and is growing spiritually. For someone who calls himself passive, John was extremely adept at getting what he wanted. In fact, I've never seen an interview with John in which he does not assert complete control over the conversation. As the CEO of a billion-dollar company, John was obviously an effective leader. John knew how to close the sale, a friend said. Evidently, John has a knack for staying out of the spotlight. With his humble and quiet demeanor, he asserts his authority in an indirect, some would say underhanded, way. Workers at Access Graphics acknowledged that John Ramsey tended to remain firmly in control from behind the scenes. According to numerous ex-employees, Ramsey always delegated firings to others. 
When Merrick was pushed out of Ramsey's company, the firing was done in a particularly Machiavellian manner. Merrick was promoted. Then his new executive position was abolished. This pattern of avoiding or minimizing his own responsibility extends far beyond John's professional life. For example, in 1998, he was asked by investigators about the affair that ended his first marriage. Here's how he described it. We hired her as a secretary in a small office, and, you know, I was vulnerable, but not, not crossing the line. We were at a Christmas party. She turned around and kissed me, and then I just kind of got sucked in. It was one of the things I got into and I couldn't get out. She was extremely aggressive, a very volatile person. I got rid of her finally. I finally got her to stop pursuing me. Note, this is a man who has cheated on his wife, destroyed his 12-year marriage, walked out on his family, but somehow John makes himself sound like a victim. Again, by giving himself this apparently passive role, John is rewriting the story in his favor. In the same interview, John also told investigators a bizarre anecdote about something that happened not long after he met Patsy. Apparently, his former mistress, Gloria, came knocking on Patsy's door, looking for John. I didn't want her to find me anywhere. I kind of told Patsy what had happened. I said I had this girlfriend that was crazy. There was a knock on the door. According to John, Patsy pretended not to know John at all. She was smooth as a cucumber. Then, Gloria asked if she could use Patsy's telephone to call John. Patsy said, Oh, our phone is out of order. We just moved in. And here I was standing behind the door. From that moment on, Gloria left me alone, and I also realized what a significant person Patsy was. This is all very bizarre to say the least. A 36-year-old man literally hiding from his former mistress. The fact that he was so impressed by Patsy's ability to lie on his behalf. It all plays into a dynamic that we noted in the last episode. Patsy's major job was to make sure nobody annoyed John. Housekeeper Linda Wilcox recalled that even though John was quiet and certainly not openly aggressive, he remained a dominant figure in the household. He had a particular way of showing his displeasure that Wilcox said was extremely effective. On one occasion, a bathroom flooded in the house. That particular bathroom was John's bathroom. They each had their own bathroom, John and Patsy, and neither used the other. It was too weird. I'd gotten most of the water, but he got his feet wet. You could see it in his face. It was like his eyes changed color, he was so mad. But he has extreme self-control, and unless you're looking for it, you miss it. As I said in the last episode, this could have led to a dynamic in which Patsy was afraid of disappointing John, in which she felt the need to conceal problems from him and play the part of a perfect wife. I suggested that this may have contributed to an unhealthy, even abusive, relationship between Patsy and Jean Benet. But some people believe this dynamic points to John as the abuser, and therefore as the killer. So let's talk about the possible sequence of events on Christmas night. There is one theory, mainly espoused by people on the internet, that John acted alone, that he killed Jean Benet and did the entire staging, including the ransom note, while Patsy and Burke were asleep. In my view, this theory just doesn't stand up to the overwhelming evidence pointing to Patsy's involvement, most obviously the handwriting and the fibers. While this theory has gained minor support, no actual investigator has endorsed it. A more widely accepted theory of John as the killer 
is Linda Arndt's version. John actually killed his daughter, but Patsy was involved in presenting the murder as something other than a murder. In this theoretical sequence, the crime begins with John Ramsey molesting his daughter. She resists in some way, or perhaps threatens to tell somebody, and he reacts in a moment of anger, with the throttling and the head injury. At this point, according to the theory, Patsy becomes involved. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for mothers to cover for their abusive husbands. It's also possible John could have misrepresented what happened, convincing Patsy it was some kind of accident. We have observed John's ability to create narratives which minimize his own wrongdoing. So in this scenario, Patsy takes charge of the staging, in a hurried and frenzied attempt to protect her husband and her own reputation. John, presumably in shock after committing the murder, allows her to do this, and at some point they decide to call the police. This is probably the most common version of the theory that John did it. Ultimately, however, I remain doubtful about this theory. There's no real forensic case to be made based on what's publicly known. I also find it hard to believe that John would ever allow Patsy to write that ransom note. Everything we know about John tells us that he's calm, rational, and logical. A fake kidnapping with a phony ransom note is an incredibly risky plan. It would be totally out of character for John Ramsey to simply sit back and allow Patsy to go ahead with that scheme. The decision to call the police, which was, by all accounts, made by John Ramsey, also indicates an unwillingness to go along with that ransom note. The biggest problem with all the versions of the theory that John killed Jean Bonnet is that they don't explain the ransom note. There are lines in that note that only make sense as attempts by Patsy to hide the truth from John. So the theory we discussed last episode, with Patsy as the sole killer and stager, remains, in my view, somewhat more convincing. Of course, the question I have to answer then is, if Patsy was the killer, why would John choose to protect her? There's no doubt that John was resistant to the police investigation, and over the years John has been quite willing to bend the truth about his daughter's death. So why would he do that? Why would he protect the killer of his child? John has been asked about this in several interviews. Was there ever a moment where you doubted your wife? Oh, no. Not even for a nanosecond. Did either of you for a moment suspect each other? No. Not for Absolutely a not minute. for a microsecond. If you thought it was anyone in your family, that person would be reported immediately? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. How could you do, not do that? I mean, it, it, it's beyond human comprehension to not do that. To explain this, we need to make a distinction between the way John talks about the crime and the way he actually thinks about what happened that night. As we know, John and Patsy have always emphasized the brutality and evil of the killing. This person is a monster. How could you kill a beautiful, defenseless, six-year-old child on Christmas Day? This was a premeditated murder. Bashed in JonBenet's head. The most horrible thing that a human being can do is murder a child. This is a very brutal, savage murder. A hideous, heinous crime. The worst kind of evil you could ever imagine. The most diabolical, evil, 
criminal. Would you get up in the middle of the night and slaughter your child? Well, I don't think I know anybody that could be this evil. But I think it's likely that John and Patsy only talk about the killing this way because it helps their defense case. The more brutal they can make this crime sound, the harder it is for people to imagine nice people like the Ramses as the killers. Remember, most of the so-called evidence for this sadistic intruder theory was developed three months after the crime by Lou Smith. There's no reason to assume the Ramses ever truly believed that was what really happened to Jean Benet. As we theorized in the last episode, before the killing, John seemed somewhat disengaged from his family. He was hardly ever home. His main focus was clearly on his career. There were signs of a lack of communication. Patsy created an image for John of a perfect family with no serious problems. Indeed, it's quite possible that John had never taken the time to consider whether there were any deeper issues in his family. Try to put yourself in the mind of John Ramsey on the morning of the 26th. You wake up, your wife screams and hands you that ransom note. She's clearly distraught. Your daughter is missing from her bed. Based on what we know, it seems John Ramsey tried his best to do the rational thing in that situation. According to Patsy, He had the note and I said, what are we going to do? And he said, call the police, call 911. And I was looking around, reading, but it said, don't do that. You know, what if they heard? John said, we got to call, call them. So Patsy is pointing to the instructions in the note, suggesting that John should follow them. And John instead does the sensible, rational thing and tells her to call the police. John himself said, Patsy asked, what should we do? And I said, call the police. This was also confirmed by Burke, who was listening from his bedroom. My mom was really nervous and my dad was trying to calm her down. He was like, okay, calm down. Like, we can call the police. Let's call the police. Over the course of that morning, according to this theory, John put things together, eventually deducing that Jean Benet was hidden somewhere in the house. At that point, John would have to have known that Patsy was hiding something from him, and that something terrible had happened that night. The discovery of the body, hidden inside the home, confirmed it. Based on John's limited view of his family, I don't think he would have viewed this as some evil, sadistic murder. In fact, I think he could only view it as some kind of horrible, freak occurrence, which Patsy had desperately tried to hide from him. Maybe it was a tragic accident, a moment of wild misjudgment, some kind of brain snap. Maybe Burke was involved in some way. Whatever it was, although Patsy was obviously responsible, she would never have actually meant, in John's mind, to hurt Jean Benet. From John's point of view, he knew Patsy. He knew she was, fundamentally, a good, loving mother. That was the image Patsy had always presented. The front that offenders typically offer to the outside world is usually a good person. Patsy was a wonderful mother. She wasn't that kind of person. I love my children. I don't think John would have felt angry at Patsy. I think he would have felt deeply sorry for her. So according to this theory, John was faced with a choice. On the one hand, he could work with police to find out the truth. Patsy would potentially go to jail his family would be torn apart. 
his son would grow up without a mother. Even if she wasn't prosecuted, by acknowledging they were responsible for their child's death, they would be utterly disgraced and humiliated. On the other hand, John could stand by the woman he loved, maintain his reputation, and keep his family together. This meant getting away from police, doing whatever needed to be done to point suspicion away from the family. Importantly for John Ramsey, this also meant never finding out what really happened to his daughter. This was the dilemma John was facing in those early hours and days after the crime. Family friend Pam Griffin, who was with the Ramseys the day after the killing, recalled that while Patsy was heavily sedated and basically unconscious, John Ramsey kept repeating two things, I don't get it, and the question, why? Based on everything that happened after that, it seems John Ramsey decided to make that devil's bargain, to commit to the cover-up, salvaging his family and his reputation, but remaining in a state of ignorance, perhaps of denial about what really happened to Jean Benet. He could only have faith in his wife and son that it was not intentional. In your yeah. book, you say you've never read the, the autopsy. No. That's just not something you want to know. I don't want to go there, no. Um, no. Remember that John faced a somewhat comparable situation with the death of his older daughter, Beth. It just didn't make sense. Car accident? Car accident. Middle of the day, just a freak accident. Based on what we know of John's faith and psychology, I think he could have processed Jean Benet's death in a similar way. As for the specific details of what happened... That's just not something you want to know. I don't want to go there. No. And remember the strangely ambiguous response that John and Patsy always gave about the genital trauma. You don't know if any sexual activity took place. It's not clear to me that there was. We don't know. It's one of those questions you don't want to know the answer to, frankly. This all seems to fit together. I don't think John and Patsy ever talked about what really happened that night. It's likely that from the very start, there was a tacit understanding between them that they were going to treat that phony kidnapping as reality, no matter what. John was also smart enough to know that, from a legal perspective, the less he knew about the crime, the better. Of course, there's a strong element of denial here. There's the avoidance of responsibility, which we've already pointed out is a part of John's character. Fundamentally, I think, there's also a degree of profound self-righteousness. There's nothing that shows that we are the type of people that would do something like this to a child. The Ramsey's refusal to accept reality and face justice, as any poor family would have had to do in these circumstances, is related to a much wider problem in our culture, which we'll talk about in Episode 8. In the years since the crime, John has done relatively well for himself. In 2004, he entered state politics, campaigning for a seat in Michigan's House of Representatives. He ran as a traditional Republican family man. A local newspaper reported, John Ramsey greets voters at his campaign office with a handshake, a free hot dog, and a book that declares he didn't kill his daughter. John was not successful in his political bid. However, he has gained somewhat of a following by publishing a Christian self-help book. Jesus is real. He's who he said he was. 
I firmly believe that. I can communicate with him through prayer. He's in our life. He's real. So when John Bonet was murdered, I had faith. It wasn't just a, a logical exercise. I had, it had gone from my head to my heart. So I knew John Bonet was okay and with God, and, and I didn't question God you know, as to why did this happen. After Patsy's death, John remarried and now lives in Moab, Utah. One thing is very clear. John is never going to change his story about the killing of Jean Benet. In his own mind, I am certain, John thinks he is a good, noble man who protected his family at all costs. He's worked non-stop for more than 20 years, establishing control over this narrative. His family name, his reputation, indeed his entire identity are now invested in the life story he's created for himself. There's no way he's ever going to give that up. In my opinion, John Ramsey will go on repeating himself for as long as he can. This podcast features music from Coag on YouTube and Lucor on Audio Jungle. Vocal contributions from Eric Peabody and Meredith Nudo. Production assistance provided by Magnolia Studios. Visit our site for full attributions and references.